Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. It's late for you guys, but thanks for joining us, and we're so glad you're here. Hey, next weekend is Mother's Day, everybody, and we're excited about that. It's going to be awesome. Get your mom out here, and if you can't get her out here, make sure you get her something, okay, because then she'll get you out of here, and it'll be bad for that. I got this chair up here because I got a little back thing going on. Anybody know when you get 51, stuff starts just falling apart? Come on, praise God for that. It's really my hip, and, but I don't want to admit that it's my hip because that feels very old. And uh, so pray for a brother's hip. Uh, hey, um, I want to celebrate this. By the way, my name is Danny Rivers, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us today, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, last weekend, um, with our student retreat and our, our baptism, we had 28 people get baptized last weekend, which is amazing. Amazing, amazing. 16 of those uh, were teenagers who got baptized at our retreat, which is an incredible thing. And 15 uh, teenagers, I think that's the number, gave their lives to Christ uh, at the retreat. And so I want to say a massive thank you to Pastor Andy and all of the team, all the moms and dads and Thank you, thank you, thank you. All of the team that helped. There was 80 some of you guys down there last week. And uh, man, what a privilege it is to work with students. And I want to look at the students and say, you're not part of the church of tomorrow. You're the part of the church of right now. And you've always got a seat at our table. And you're leaders and you're, you're going places and God's doing things in your life. Not someday, right here, right now. And we're so grateful for all, all of you. Some of you right here on the front row, thank you guys. Thank you so much. We love you. Love our students, love our kids, and we're grateful for them. Um, you, you ever notice, by the way, the series it's called It's Okay to Not Be Okay, and I don't usually give titles to my messages. Um, I probably should, but I'm not good at it. Uh, uh, so I'm just going to tell you that the title today is that he knows the way that I take. He knows the way that I take. You, you ever notice how when you see somebody for, for the first time in a while or somebody you, not, you don't know really, really well, we tend to say something like, hey, how's it going? Or, hey, are you, how, you, know, are you doing good? Uh, or, or, or how are you? In fact, what if we just did that real quick? Look around somebody and, and ask them how they are and how you doing? If it's a pretty girl and you're a single guy, you can say, how you doing? <laughs> you know, stop hogging it all. Let the other person talk. Come on, everybody, right? It's interesting to me that the normal response to how's it going or how you doing is, oh, good, good, everything's good. Or, or now it's like, oh, busy, really busy. Um, and and, and if, you're, if you're churchy, you're like, oh, blessed, hashtag blessed. Come on, somebody, hashtag blessed. Come on, any churchy people in the house today? Yeah, three of you, three of you. We're not doing very good up in here. I got I to do better. I, we, we're trying to make churchy people. A- amen, somebody. Um, I'm guessing a lot of times that response, I'm good, is accurate, right? But I'm also guessing that a lot of the times it's not accurate. And I think that in this room today, or those of you who are with us online are going to listen to this as a podcast later on, there are people for whom, today, for whom uh, things are not okay. And it's not okay right now. And I think there's a lot of people that, if they're being honest, would say, I'm lonely, I feel isolated. I feel like I can't really share what's going on in my heart or in my life. Um, I can't tell people that it's actually not good. I'm, it's rough. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, I'm broken. What, whatever the case is. And I think it's sometimes it's just hard to express our, 
how, how things are really going with people, and that happens for a lot of reasons. But, but I wanna say this at the start of this series that what we're saying is that it's okay to not be okay. And, 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 and it's okay that you find people that you tell them, you know, I'm hurting or I'm broken or I'm, I'm confused or I'm disoriented by parts of my life. It's okay to not be okay. And if you say, well, I don't know about that, Danny. Well, remember that Jesus himself, the Bible says that there was a season where it says Jesus wept. And there was another time when Jesus um, said to, to God, he said, Father, um, why have, have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So obviously there were pr- moments in Jesus' life where it wasn't okay. But, but I also understand why sometimes we'll just throw it out like I'm good. Like we don't want to get into it. Like I get that. Um, and I, I, I know sometimes why I say that. Um, we, we've learned that not everyone is good at keeping your secrets with you. We've learned that if we share what's happening in our lives that other people may share what we've shared and, and what a shame that is to, to, to have a church where, where if we say to people, I'm having a really hard time and I just need somebody to know that and, and be praying with me, that that might make its way around. My, my wife, Rachel, was meeting with somebody this week and they don't go to our church, so I don't feel like I'm bearing anybody's stuff. And, and she was telling Rachel that something happened to her when she was a very young teenager that was horrific and traumatic. And then she said a, a, a couple of minutes later, she goes, I think that's, you're the very first person that I've ever told this to. And she's in her 40s now, and I was thinking, she's carried that truth about herself around for three decades by herself, a weight that no human being is designed to bear on their own. And sometimes, oftentimes, in fact, I think this is how people, even inside churches like this one, feel that they have to do life in such a way that they're not allowed they don't feel permission to, to bear their story. And, and sometimes even people of faith will think that, 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 that I, I'm not faithful or I'm not faith-filled if I'm going through a season where I'm not doing okay you know, mentally or in my, my mental health or my emotional health or my emotional well-being. And the question that I have for, for the series as we kind of go through this into next week into Mother's Day, I've, I've got a, a, um, a psychologist coming who is a pastor's wife and a dear friend of ours who's coming on the 21st who is a trauma specialist and she's gonna preach the word of God about trauma and what we do with it. If you've experienced that, and we know now more than ever that people have experienced major traumatic events in their lives and, and because I don't know how to talk about that, uh, I'm trying to bring somebody in who can and, and the question is, how do I hang on to God, to faith, when I'm going through a, a season where I'm not okay, where life feels unbearable? How, how do I keep pushing through when it's not okay? How, how do I love people well when I'm not okay? And we're just gonna name that today. Um, it's okay to not be okay. And here's what I've seen, and you may disagree with this, but this is what I've seen in 30 years now of, of, of working with people, that you can be spiritually healthy, like you're good with God, but struggling mentally or emotionally. I've also seen that you can be unhealthy in both of those categories, or you can be healthy in both of those categories. I've also seen people who are not very spiritual or who may be struggling spiritually, 
but who are mentally and emotionally healthy, meaning that not always are these things uh, integrated, but oftentimes they are. Oftentimes one thing leads to another. I'm saying that to say this, that everyone has seasons in life, everyone has seasons in life where things are not okay. And I'll just say this as we get ready to move into our Bible passage for the day, that sometimes we can feel strong on Sundays in God's house, we can walk out of here with, with, encouraged with our, our faith buoyed and then have that sense on Monday morning that Monday morning Jesus is not so clear and present with us as Sunday morning Jesus. And, 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 and if you're honest and if you're a believer, you felt that way. Like we can walk out of here believing some truths from the Bible that things like I'm, I'm a child of God, which is true. Right? We can believe that God loves me just as I am, which is true. And we can believe that Romans 8, 28 says that all things work together for good for them who are called, to, the, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We, we can believe that the psalmist says that God is for me. This one thing I know, God is for me. We can believe that. And we can believe that my prayers matter and, and, and that God hears all of them. And we can walk out into Monday morning and, 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 and with the pace of life and the stress of life, those truths can get muddy become less clear to us. We can, we can be like the prophet Elijah who on one moment is like, I'll take on the 400 prophets of Baal. I'll take them to a God duel and win and defeat them. And a couple days later, he's despairing for his very life. He's suicidal. We can feel like, like we're a ninja for Jesus one minute and then the next minute, like we can't take Mary Poppins out. Come on, somebody. It's the third time I said Mary Poppins and I don't know why I'm using her. She's fictional, she won't get offended, she won't cancel me. Come on, somebody. What do you, what, what do you mean? You say, not, uh, anyways, I'm just kidding. What if Mary Poppins comes at me later on with her umbrella and whatnot? So what we're, I don't know what's happening to my sermon, all of this is falling apart. What we're saying is it's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to take all of that, all of our questions, our hurts, our hangouts, our habits to God, who, as we learned last week, our God is able. In in the time that remains, I want to take you through a story from the Bible. It's way too long of a story for me to attempt to do what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, so um, hold on. Um, It's one of the strangest stories ever, not just from the Bible, but just period in, in, in literary history. And it's the story of a man named Job, and here's what it says in Job chapter one. In the land of Uz, not Oz, it's a different place, There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And what the Bible's telling us about Job is that he's a good, godly man. Hang on to that notion. He had seven sons and three daughters. That's a lot of kids, everybody. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. There was a man in the land of Uz named Job. We don't know where Uz was except that it was in the east. We know that the east is where Adam and Eve were, were, were forced to go when they were removed forcibly from the Garden of Eden. And so the notion of East of Eden, which was a novel by John Steinbeck, Um, became known as the place where you go when life is broken. It's the place that Cain is forced to go after he kills his brother Abel. 
It's, it's the beginning, in the beginning of Job's story, um, we read from the prologue here that, that everything seems good. I mean, this brother's blessed. Um, everything is going well in that everything is as it should be. He's a pious man. He's a blessed man. God uh, blesses Job so much with so much favor to the extent that it appears that the amount of God's blessings in Job's life is in direct proportion to the amount of obedience that Job has offered God. But trouble is coming to Job. And us is the place where very bad things happen to a very good man. Us is the place where sorrow and suffering come without warning and without explanation and where God seems to be completely absent from Job's life. Us is the land of it's not okay. And everybody will spend some time in the land of us and maybe for some of you, you would say, I'm there now. I'm there right now. Um, life is not okay right now. And it could be any number of things from divorce and anxiety and depression and problems in the family and health and job loss and financial things. And sometimes we cry out, is, is there a place where, where I can go where it's okay to not be okay? And is there a place where I can just bear my soul and, and be honest? And yes, it's the land of us. We'll see this. The place where you go when anxiety is your constant companion and depression and despair and fear and loneliness and grief are part of your story. Now, when you read the book of Job, um, if, you, if you pay attention well, you'll notice that there are, if it were a play, that there are two stages where the play takes place. There is the lower stage, which is where all of that happens to Job plays out, and there is the upper stage where God is and where all that happens to Job gets decided in the upper stage. There's what's going on on earth, and there is what's going on um, in, in, in heaven, and it plays a huge part of how we understand Job. Be because we have the benefit of seeing the entire story, we can read all of it. We know what's happening in both of the realms, uh, but the characters in the story uh, in the lower realm, they don't know what's happening. Job does not know that there's an upper stage. He doesn't know about the story that's happening up there, neither do his family, neither do his friends who, who show up to comfort him. All they can see in the moment in the lower stage is the reality of what's happening to them. They have no sense of of a grand scheme, a cosmic reality that is unfolding above them in the way that we can see by reading the story. And so we go to the upper stage now. In Job chapter one, verse six, one day the angels, some translations say the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. This is such an unusual thing. The, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And, and then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then Satan replies to him, does Job fear God for nothing? Meaning, do you really think he does all of this for no reason? And he said, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. And then he says this, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. 
Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what happens, that's the upper stage. What happens in the lower stage is that immediately, in one day, Job loses everything. His livestock, his servants, and finally his own children, all of them at once, celebrating in the older brother's house. Everything is lost in a moment, and we wait to see what Job's response will be. And the text tells us, at this, Job got up, that this is the messengers have come and told him what's happened. At this job, got up and tore his robe and shaved his head and then he fell to the ground in, in worship, which is an unbelievable thought. And, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And may the name of the Lord be praised or in the old translations it says, and blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. All of that takes place in the lower realm, in the lower stage. And then in chapter two, we flip back to the upper stage. And once again, and I'll, I won't read it for the sake of time. Once again, the sons of God, the angels come before God and Satan says again, I mean, God says to Satan again, have you considered my servant Job? And there's an exchange. There's nobody like him on all the earth. And once again, Satan accuses God of protecting Job and the reason that God, Job is faithful is because you've protected him and God says, okay, very well, then you can touch his body, but you may, not, you may not take his life. And from here on out, the entire story takes place down in the lower stage. And, and, and before we go there, though, we, we, we have to think about it. What, what's going on in the upper stage? Like, what's this all about? And so a lot of people, and sometimes scholars and sometimes not religious people trying to understand the text, We'll say that the key takeaway from Job is the question, where is God when people suffer? That's what they'll say. Where, where is God when life isn't okay? But, but in fact, that's not the key, I don't think. I think the key question comes from chapter one, verse nine, where Satan asks God, does Job fear you for nothing? It's a challenge to the goodness of God to the sovereignty of God. This is a question Satan asked. And what is being suggested is that Job only worships you because it's in his own self-interest. It's just a quid pro quo. And, and were you to turn off the fountain of, of blessings upon his life and allow hardship to, to become his reality, he'll turn on you. He'll turn off the faucet of his devotion and his obedience to you the moment you turn off the blessings into his life and allow real suffering to come in. That's what's at stake in this story. Will he or won't he stay faithful to God in suffering? And to this question, God suggests that Satan is wrong, that his views are cynical, that his, his views are warped and misguided, that the core of life is a God who, who loves and who guides and who protects and walks with us through the, the valleys, even the valleys of the shadow of death, and, and, a, and a people who will stay faithful to God even when life is not okay. That's what's at stake. So Job, as we read, gets hammered. And this time it wasn't his possessions. It was his physical body. And he is covered with boils, painful boils, ulcers from the crown of his head all across his face, down his neck, all the way to the soles of his feet. And he is so miserable, so horrified by all that has become him 
that he goes out on the outside of town, whether that's by quarantine or that's just a form of his, his grief, and he scrapes his skin in, 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 the, in, the, in the ash heap, in the place where it was their dump, with broken shards of pottery as he scrapes, trying to relieve the pressure of the boils, and, and, and his response, what will his response be? Will, will he fall down and worship again? Will he, will he say, blessed be the name of the Lord? And his first response is, is given to his wife when his wife says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? And you're suffering? And of course, Mrs. Mrs. Job has lost everything as well. I don't know what her name is, so she's Mrs. Job. You're welcome. (laughs) Curse God and die. And of course, he does not take her advice. Instead, he replies, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And what's happening here is that Job is trying to come to understand God. I thought I knew him before all this happened to me. He's trying to, he's trying to, to understand the nature, the character of God, and, and Job did not sin in what he said, and what's diff- this is different by degrees from what he did the first time, where he just said he did not sin. This time he did not sin in what he said, but what's alluded to here is that Job probably had a lot of thoughts and questions in his heart that went unsaid. And then all of Job's friends hear what's happening and they come. And and here's what the text says. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement, meaning they planned together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And now, if, if, if when you come up on your brother who's really struggling it's probably not good if you're like, it's not, it looks great, man. You know, like all the boils on his face. Not too bad at all, right? And instead, here's what happens, right? When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they begin to weep aloud. Come on, somebody, if they come to the hospital to see you, and they just, before they even get there, like, oh, dear God, what's happened? And then they tear their clothes off and throw dirt on their head. It ain't good. I don't know if any Seinfeld friend, fans in the house when Kramer says, look away, I'm hideous. Anybody? Sorry. He, he, he's a pastor, right? The guest in the house today. Sorry. That's what's going down. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Just, just, just a word here. I think what we're seeing here is that oftentimes we feel pressure when friends or family are going through things where they're not okay. We feel pressure to have the right words or to try to explain why this is happening. I know that I have felt for sure that pressure, but Job's friends remind us that the right response is almost never words. It's just presence. Which is why Paul would say in Romans 12 that we're to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. And he doesn't say fix those who mourn or give advice to those who weep or, or tell the people to weep that are weeping to stop weeping and that it's all gonna be good. He just says, be with them. Paul's saying it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay for you to acknowledge that it's okay for them not to be okay. 
And at first, this is what Job's friends do. And after the seven days pass, they will talk a lot about um, why and what happened. And they will get in trouble for what they say from God himself. And they will try to explain why he's going through this. And like them, we would rather give a reason for the suffering. We, try to, we like to try to explain. We, we like to give the reason why rather than just accepting the mystery that, that is at the heart of suffering. That Job's sufferings make no sense to us because we think that bad things aren't supposed to happen to good people. And that's, this is the great irony of Job that sometimes bad things happen to really, really good, pious, like godly people who are living in right relationship with God and sometimes God's purposes and his actions are way beyond our understanding. Now Job speaks again. And we think, what will he say this time? Will he say the right thing and, and this is the end of the story or something else? And we find out that he says something else. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And for the next 28 or so chapters, Job pours out a level of bitterness and confusion and sorrow and doubt and anger towards God like the world has never seen before. And he says things like this, and I'm just skimming for the sake of time. In Job 6 and 4, he says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. He not only goes after God, but he goes after his closest friends because they've been accusing him of wickedness and he accuses God and he accuses them and he confronts God. He challenges God. He asks God to take his life again and again. He's not doing all of this as an unbeliever. He's doing this as a pious, righteous man of God. And he does this in such a raw way that from chapters four to 23, his friends attack him for it. They say, you're wicked. And, and their logic is a, is a kind of syllogism which, which states that you're suffering in part because you failed God. And you've done bad things and, and this is why bad things happen to you. And when you were blessed, it was because you were doing the right things and now they're suggesting, and one of his friends in particular suggests that if you would just examine your heart, if you would find out what you've done, if you would fix that, the suffering will end. It seems right, but it's not right. And Job doesn't claim to be perfect, but he confronts their logic and, 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 and that, that says that suffering comes because you've done the wrong thing and that's not true is what he's saying. And he's right, it's not true. And, and he begs an audience with God over and again. And finally God speaks. Chapter 38, and then the Lord spoke to Job, Job out of the storm. Come on, y'all. We've had some storms around here the last couple of weeks that were a little terrifying. This building took a direct, like, like lightning bolt from God, apparently. Like, we're trying to do the right stuff, and he's like, lightning bolt, you know? And all of our lights have trashed, and we didn't have screens for the last two weeks. In fact, our, our copy machine over there, um, like, like, it has a hole in its motherboard. Like, a, a laser went through it and blew our copy machine up. Come on, that's how... You don't want to get lightning. Come on, somebody. You don't, you don't want to get lightning. And God, as if the storm isn't scary enough, a voice calls out from the storm to Job and says, who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Or br brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then look at this verse four. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation?" Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And the first words out of God's mouth are a direct confrontation of Job. And and, and what's what's really crazy is God never tells Job about the upper stage. He never says, hey, there was this conversation that I had with Satan. He never, he never answers Job's 16 times in Job. Job asks why. He doesn't answer one of his why questions. Instead, he responds to Job's questions with questions of his own, questions that Job has no capacity to answer. Seems mean, like, why are you doing this, God? But we learn about the questions that God has for us, and he has questions all through the Bible, is God is, first of all, pointing out to Job that you have a finite, you have a human mind, you have a a limited perspective, a limited point of view. You can't understand what God does. None of us can. And God's questions are not leading to Job to, to feel inferior. They're leading Job to come to understand the character and the nature of God. And so he does this in places like, in, 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 in verse 25, where he says, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Meaning who creates the streams and, and, and the rivers and, and, and the brooks in life? Who creates a path for the thunder, thunderstorm to water a land where nobody lives? An uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland, make it sprout with, with grass. Why would God water a land where no one lives? And what God is telling Jacob, I mean Job, is that God is a God of unfathomable grace and goodness and kindness, and he begins to tell Job, you know who set the lights up in the heavens? That was me. You know who created the darkness so that mankind can sleep? That was me. You know who told the oceans where they had to stop and couldn't go any further? That was me. You know who, the one who, who makes sure the desert creatures get enough water to survive? That was me. He, makes, he starts talking about, about the ostrich, right? And he starts saying, this ostrich is useless for anything. It's a terrible mother. Go read it. It lays its egg in the ground somewhere. It doesn't even remember where it is. Doesn't even pay attention to the egg, right? And then, and then he says, but then he said, I created the ostrich because when the ostrich runs, he looks at the, the rider and the horseman and he laughs like God created the, the ostrich for no other reason than God likes speed, baby, right? He starts talking about the behemoth, which is probably the hippo. And he's like, there's no point in the hippo's life other than I wanted to have a hippo. He talks about the Leviathan, which is probably like the Nile crocodile. And he says, this, nobody can eat it. Nobody can catch it. Nobody can do anything with it. He goes, I just created it because I wanted one. He starts talking about the, the, the irrational goodness of God. All of these chapters, he's confronting Job with the reality of who God is in a way that Job can begin to understand the greatness and the goodness of God. We, you and I, we live on the lower stage. And we don't get to understand all the whys in life either. But what Job finds out after all of God's conversation with him is that God is good, gratuitously good, unfathomably generous, irrationally loving to his creatures. He gives with no reason at all. Oftentimes his giving is unrequited. And Job never finds out about the conversation in heaven that started all of this in his life. And it's not because the writer forgot to put it in. It's because Job's story is is our story. We live down here on the lower stage. 
And we often find ourselves in the land of us, the land of it's not okay, the land of brokenness and confusion and hurt and pain. And we, we don't get to know. We don't get to see the end of the story like we can in Job's life. But what we see in his story that should inform our story is that we find out that Job finds out who God is. So incredibly good, so incredibly loving, so incredibly thoughtful, so amazingly gracious and generous and patient with us, so sure that you and I can handle all this stuff that life will send our way and keep our faith intact. He's sure of that. And here's what Job says in response to all that God says to him. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Meaning, I heard that there was a God and I aligned my life, I oriented my life to please him. But now, because God made himself known to me, I've seen him, I have seen you. And his response to this is to remember all the things that he said. And he said, therefore, I despise myself. Back it up, please. And repent in dust and, and ashes. He repents because he realizes that what he said about God wasn't true. That the actual, he realizes the actual character and nature of God, the kindness, the gentleness of God. And for, and for Job, that is enough. I don't get my why questions answered. I don't understand why this happened or what, what was going on up there. He doesn't even know there wasn't up there. But for Job, it's enough. And then there's this strange little epilogue that is chapter 42. And in it, God confronts Job's friends and says, you were all wrong. How dare you? And he, he affirms Job, who is the one who was arguing against God and his friends were arguing for God. That's how jacked up this thing is. And he says to Job's friends, I'm not going to forgive you for what you said about Job unless Job prays for you. And Job prays that God would forgive his friends and of course God does. And then these words, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep twice what he had before, 6,000 camels, twice what he did before, 1,000 yoke of oxen, twice what he did, and 1,000 donkeys. And then, and then he also had seven sons and three daughters, which is exactly the same amount as he had before because how many of y'all know 10 is plenty of children? But notice these words. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third, Karen Chapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. First thing that, that the ancient mind would have said was, why are you telling us the daughters' names and not the sons? Should be reversed. And then the second thing that would astonish any father in the ancient world was that you don't give your daughters the inheritance because that inheritance is going to go to her in-laws. It's a dowry. You give it to your sons because your sons are your 401k plan. They're going to take care of you when you're old. And yet, Job does something irrational in the ancient mind. Why? What is Job doing here? Job is mirroring 
Job is echoing what he saw in the character and nature of God. He is becoming gratuitously generous in a very non-strategic way. He has become irrationally loving to his daughters. He names them. He, he makes sure we know their names when he doesn't let us know their sons. And no father would have done this. He is not good to them because they've earned something. He's good to them because God has been good to him. And he is passing it forward. And what we learn is that Job was wrong, or Satan was wrong about Job. The central question of, of Job is could a human being hang on to God in faith in trust when it doesn't seem to pay off. One could, one did. And he became the wonderful wizard of us. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Now lean in, lean in, lean in. Last thing. Job could not see the upper stage. He did not know that his faithfulness would have ramifications beyond his wildest dreams. He did not know that something cosmic and eternal was at stake with his little life. Sitting on an ash heap, scraping boils off his skin with the shards of broken pottery as he sat there confused, disoriented, wondering where's God. He did not know that his faithfulness was going to be used to vindicate God's covenantal love with people. He did not know that thousands of years later, millions of people would use and be inspired by his story that when you're in the land of Oz, if you hang on to hope, if you don't let go, if you don't don't give up. If you, if you come to realize how very close God is with you at all time, that he knows what you're going through, that he knows everything is not okay, and he's telling you it's okay to not be okay, that he knows us. Job 23.10. For he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. He knows the way that I take. I read Psalm 103 yesterday and verse 13 and 14 stuck out at me in that brilliant passage of text. The writer says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The psalmist reminding us that God is a father who understands, who has compassion towards his children when everything is not okay. That the God who formed mankind, formed me and you from the dust, knows the limitations of that frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows when we're struggling in our emotional, our mental health, our physical health. When we're in those seasons where it's, okay, where it's not okay, we remember to take God with us because he loves us because he understands us and because of Jesus, he has made a way for healing and purpose and grace and mercy and forgiveness because he knows the way that I take. He knows the way that you take. So Father, um, as we just get started in this little series, I pray that for folks that would say it's not okay right now in my life, that they would lean in maybe to this story of Job in a way that 
would just blow up their faith, would, 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 would help them not to answer all their questions because Job doesn't answer all the questions. God doesn't answer all of Job's questions, but, but Job helps us see who God is, the character, the nature of God, that God trusts Job enough to allow him to be tested beyond what he thinks he can handle, but as it turns out, he was ready, he was willing, he was able. And God got glory from, from Job's life over the enemy in a way that is mind-blowing now. God, I pray that as we walk through this series over the next few weeks, and I didn't answer everybody's questions today, I won't be able to, I don't know how. I pray this week, God, that the Spirit of God would connect the dots for people, that the Spirit of God would come and bring comfort and peace and help and grace and strength. And I pray that people walk out of this place in that reality that they are children of God, that you are for them, that they are beloved by you, that you hear their prayers, that you answer their prayers. Not one of them gets missed. I pray that they would leave knowing that you know the way that they take. In Jesus' name, I pray your best, your blessings, your goodness over them. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. God bless you. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.